Do you have your Bibles? Turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't mind, I will make Colorado my second home. It's such a beautiful state. Thankful for the hospitality of this church. You're singing, ministering to my soul, uh, singing gospel-centered lyrics of such solid truths, and you're singing these songs like you believe the truths that you're singing. And I'm thankful, not that I know all of you personally, but just hearing you sing is a, a means of ministering to my soul as a visitor here. I'm thankful for the leadership of this church. I'm convinced that poor leadership is a judgment of God upon a people. You know, when you have people who will not preach the Word to you, that's a judgment for your own sins. Because they did not love the truth. They heaped unto themselves teachers having itching ears. That bad pulpit ministry is evidence of unbelief in a church. But good pulpit ministry in a church is God's divine grace. Is a gift of God. When Paul warned the church of Ephesus about how there would be some among them, he says, he talked about the elders as that which God has appointed over you. In Ephesians 2, it talks about God giving gifts to the church. And those gifts are the pastors and teachers. And so you're very blessed in this area of the world. You're, you're blessed that God's not only saved your souls, but He's given you a solid church to hear the Word of God faithfully proclaimed. Do not take that for granted. Thank the Lord for a solid church in this area of the world. I hope you realize what precious uh, blessing that you have. What you have here is nothing to take for granted, but to cherish it. And make sure that you Foster the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Do what you can to build up this church, to love this church, to love the people in this church, and to give yourselves to this. I am convinced that the way you serve Christ who's in heaven, who does not need your money, does not need anything that you have. You, you may have a cup of cold water to give Christ, but He's not thirsty. But if you want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, you serve His people. And principally, you serve Christ through serving the local church, the people in this congregation. That you have a, a particular love for the, the person sitting next to you. What I want to talk about is something very dear to my heart, something that um, I'm afraid I'm going to sin while I'm preaching it because I cannot even evaluate my own motives and I'm trying to ask the Lord to help me to be humble as I preach this, but I know that I am not humble enough. I know that I will not be able to make it through this sermon without some form of pride. So I, I need God's grace to preach this sermon on the humility of Jesus Christ found in Philippians chapter 2. But I will tell you up front what I want to accomplish. Three major objectives. There'll be a list of applications at the end, but of all the applications, there's three things that I want to leave and I'll, uh, you with and I want to challenge you with. One, above everything else, 
above you taking something home and becoming a better person. That's not my primary objective here is for you to be a better person after this sermon, though that's a secondary objective. My primary objective is for you to stand in awe of Jesus Christ. For you just to, to marvel at His humility. That, if you can just have a moment where you can just praise Christ for His condescension, then, then I will feel as if my job has been successful. Second thing I want out of this sermon is I want you to become more like Christ. For you to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ by seeking to humble yourself. And I don't want to be mean to you, but I know you're like me and you're struggling with pride. Now you've got to agree with me or you're prideful. <laughs> the third objective I want from you as I want you to become better servants of each other. As the Lord Jesus Christ served us, I want us to serve one another. We're going to just read the three verses, starting at verse 5 to verse 8. Again, this is on the humility of Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. And in this passage we see the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ in three ways. We see His humility in coming to us. His condescension in actually coming to us. Secondly, we see His humility in serving us. And third, we see His humility in dying for us. Coming, serving, and dying. This is what we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at this first point found in verses 5 through 7, in the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ in coming. Now just think about God who's been in heaven. That's His eternal abode. That's where He lives. And in that place, He's altogether glorious. The angels that stand in His presence are always glorifying Him, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. He's got all the majesty that you can possibly imagine. And there he has the communion of the Father and the communion of the Spirit. And he's perfectly happy. He's perfectly content. And his Father is loving him. The Spirit is loving him. He is perfectly altogether glorious in this place. But he decides to leave that aside and come to you and I. But before he can do that, the only way God can come to us is he had to veil himself of his glory. He had to hide his glory from us unless we're killed in the process. We see this in verse 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, then verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's talking the fact that his appearance look just like God. And that's because he was God. But what Paul is trying to do is get our minds to focus upon his outward reputation, his outward appearance, 
the radiance, if you would, that shone forth from his being, his glory. Being in the form of God is speaking of the glory of God. John Calvin says the form of God means his majesty. What does this look like? What does majesty of, the majesty of God appear to look like? What does it look like? Isaiah got a small glimpse of the glory of God. When the angels were crying out, holy, 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 God gave those angels an extra pair of wings for no other purpose but to hide their face from the glory of God. And here, so many people treat God as if He's just some homeboy or just some regular dude. You don't understand God if you have a low view of Him. You have not seen Him as He is. In fact, if you have seen God, no one has seen God and lived because His glory is too great for us to, to uh, take in without it killing us. This is why Isaiah, who saw just a small glimpse of the glory of God, began to feel like he's unraveling at the seams. He felt like that he's undone, that he's, he's coming apart. And if you've ever been in the presence of God, you don't think that, oh, I'm okay. Everything's all right with me. All of a sudden, you become very, very small, and your little sins that you think are little, that no one cares about, all of a sudden, the littlest sin becomes so huge in your conscience. And you can see almost the glory of God piercing into your soul, into your conscience, looking at that little white lie. And that very little white lie is going to undo you altogether. And you're going, woe is me. But some of you got more than just a little white lie, don't you? Some of you got some hatred in your heart. Some of you got some animosity. Some of you got some real sins that you got to deal with. Woe, woe, woe is me. Do you not see the glory of God? You don't understand why the angels hid their face and they are pure without sin? And if a pure angel who's never sinned has to close his eyes and bow the head and cover the head, what about you? How much glory did the second person of the Trinity have? 85% of what the Father had? No, he had the whole glory. He didn't think equality with God was something to grasp after. He was equal with God. He is God. Light of light. God of God. It says in verse 6, who though He was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had this glory. When He walked around, everything bowed down before Him. You know, you may have a position in your job. You may be this person or that person and people respect you. You have no idea what real glory is. Real respect. This is God who created everything. And this is not something he had to grasp after. The King James says this is not something he count robbery to let go. It wasn't something he, the idea behind the Greek word there is that something he's 
putting his hands around and he has to hold on to. And you and I, when we get a little attention, we just grasp after more of it. We need that. And if someone shames us or embarrasses us, us you know, that, that we just we're grasp for a good name, a good reputation. We want that. We cling to that. But this is something in Christ's humility. Though he had this glory, though he had all this honor, he didn't think that he had to hold on to it. He was willing to, if you would, not grasp hold of it, but let it go. To freely drop it. He did not count it in his mind. He did not consider it, view it, esteem it. Something to grasp hold of. Have you ever put some money in the offering plate? And as you're doing it, you're coveting your own gift. You're thinking, I could use this for something else. But you're doing it anyway, but you're, you're having a hard time letting go of the dollar. And that's all it is. And it could be a $5,000 gift, but it's just pennies. And in your mind, you're going, this is a lot, and I could use this. And you're, you're doing it faithfully, but it's hard to let it go. Or am I the only one that has experienced that? I know you've experienced that. You, you do the right thing, but it's hard to do it. Here, Christ is about to give the greatest gift He can give. And He didn't think twice about it. He's not contemplating. He's not, it's not taking a long time to consider. He's not pondering the cost. He's going, oh, no, no, no. You know, this is something He... He freely let it go. He freely dropped. Oh, oh, it's going to cost me my reputation. It's going to cost me my glory. It's going to cost me all this. What price is that to pay? He drops it. It's the act of imperative, meaning he willingly of his own initiative gave it up. He emptied himself is what it says. The Greek word is kenosis, and what it means is to make void. Kenosis means literally to empty. Now, if I had this water, it means to turn it upside down and pour out the water, to empty it. Now, what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean this, that God emptied Himself of His deity. I was taught that in college, which is a heresy, where Christ ceased to be God in His incarnation. No, he didn't. He was fully God the whole time. He never ceased to be divine. So he did not empty himself of his deity. What then did he empty himself of? Well, the text tells us what he emptied himself of. His glory, his honor, his prestige, his majesty. We're talking about his humility. He emptied himself of everything that would bring him a little praise. He gave up all that. He turned the cup upside down and every last drop of his glory and majesty was drained out. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And he did this happily and willingly for Christ to come to us. He emptied himself. But how did he empty himself? How do you get rid of the glory? It tells us how. It not only tells us what he emptied himself of, but this text tells us how he emptied himself. He emptied himself 
by taking on the form of a man, by robing himself or clothing himself in humanity. In his incarnation, he emptied himself of his glory and robed himself in humanity. This was the veil. Humanity was the veil that covered the Shekinah glory. Think about the Holy of Holies. There that stood between the holy place and the holies of holies was this big curtain, this big veil, and it kept the glory of God from killing people. It veiled the majesty and the glory and the weightiness of God. And wherever Jesus walked, even when He was in that manger, there was God. And all the glory was there. But you could not see the glory because it was veiled in human flesh. That glory was clothed in humanity. Now, the mystery of this is not that He just put on a jacket or a robe and, and, and He's still God and, and He's just acting like He's a man or put on a costume or an outfit and He's undercover God. It's not just that. No, He actually became man. He condescended to the point of taking on human flesh. This is what verse 7 says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The King James says, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. We may think humanity is a noble it's noble. We stand upright. You know, we're not like animals. We've got dignity. And you may feel like you're, you're a dignified person because, I, hey, I'm a human. But what are humans compared to God? We're closer to worms than we are to God. It takes more condescension for God to become a man than for you to become a worm. You understand that? I mean, imagine you having this high prestigious position. Maybe you're a king of some country and you decide, hey, I'll become an inchworm. Who would do that? When why? The psalmist said in Psalm 8:4, who is man that you're even mindful of him? I mean, it's one thing for even God to even consider us, to think about us, to go, oh, yeah, there's man. There's, there's humans down there. I, I'm thinking about them. That, that is condescension for God just to think about you. But what kind of condescension is for God to become like you? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says, Christ, that Christ should clothe Himself with our flesh, a piece of earth which we tread upon. Oh, infinite humility, Christ taking our flesh was one of the lowest steps of his humiliation. He humbled himself more in lying in the virgin's womb than he did hanging on the cross. It was not so much for a man to die, but for God to become man. That's the wonder of humility. Charles Spurgeon says something similar. He was the creator, and we see him here on earth as a creature. The creator who made heaven and earth without whom was not anything made that was made, yet he lies in the virgin's womb. He is born and he is cradled where the oxen feed. The creator is also the creature. 
the Son of God is the Son of Man. This is a strange combination indeed. Could condescension go further than for the infinite to be joined to the infant and the omnipotent to the feebleness of the newborn baby? See what humility there is in our Savior in coming to take on human flesh in His incarnation. And though it's not in this text, Isaiah tells us this humility is a little bit further because He's the only one who chose His body. You may, as you age, start complaining about age spots or wrinkles. Some of you women may be concerned about your physical appearance and complain to God for your nose not being right or your ears being off. You know, I have... Okay, here's condescension a little bit. I have one ear that sticks out above the others, and I didn't notice it until they put me on video. I'm like, oh, man, quit looking. <laughs> but, we, you know, we see little things, and we go, oh, oh Lord. And, we, and little complaints about your looks is a complaint to the designer of you. And you didn't get to choose your body. You understand that? You got what God gave you. One person chose his body, and that's Jesus. And you know what kind of body he chose? Isaiah tells us. He had no beauty or form that we should desire him. He was just an average guy, or maybe even below average looking guy. He wasn't Solomon who stood heads and shoulders above everybody else. He was just a regular person like you. And he chose to be. So don't, don't, don't make a fuss about your appearance and think you deserve to look better. Christ, in his humility, came and he chose not some glorious physical stature. You know, if I was going to come, I would, I would definitely make myself look like he meant. But not our Savior. This is not His. His pride is not like that. He's humble. He'll say, I'll just take a little lowly body. That will do. I'll take this one. Because I don't want them to love me for my appearance. See, my first point is this. The humility of Jesus in coming to us in His incarnation Second point about the humility of Christ. We see the humility of Christ in serving us. You know, it's one thing for Him to come, but you know, if, it, why not become this amazing King where everybody surrounds Him and serves Him? Because He's God. Should not the whole world be bowing down to the, at the feet of Jesus at the first coming? Now that's going to happen at the second coming, but shouldn't that have happened at the first coming? Charles Spurgeon says, My gracious Lord, you have come far enough already. Do you not stop where you are? In the form of God you were, in the form of man you are? That is an unspeakable stoop. Will you still humble yourself? Yes, says the text. Being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself. 
We see that in verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. After he became a man, he, he, he emptied the glory of his deity, and then as a man, he begins to empty the deity of humanity. Do you see that? Emptying the glory of deity, second, emptying the glory of humanity out. And that's where you and I were grasping after the glory of this world. We're grasping after dignity. We want people to think we're important and special and that we're knowledgeable, that we're strong, that we're good. We want praise. We want people to serve us, minister to us. But here is the king of the world. He takes on human flesh. He becomes one of us. And then whatever deity uh dignity he has as a man he begins to empty that cup as well his whole life was a life of service matthew 20 28 the lord said the son of man did not come to be served but to serve by serving us now listen to this if you think this humility is great listen to this Christ came to serve you. And you're nothing. You are less than nothing. Do you understand that? God has real glory. All you have is vain glory. Vain glory is propped up glory. I'm something. But you're actually, in reality, nothing. You're less than nothing. You deserve to be in hell. You're a wicked person. You're a prideful, wicked person. And Christ came to serve you. How can that be? How can that be? How can there be so much humility in Jesus Christ? Tell me. Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 27, Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at the table... He's saying, who's the greatest? The one who's the waiter or the one who's being waited upon? He says, I am the waiter. I'm coming underneath you. I am putting myself underneath your dignity. You know, the more important a person is, the more servants, aids, and assistance that is needed. They're so important they have to have, you know, people to take care of the request. Important people need handmaids and footmen to carry out their tasks for them. It is reported that Prince Charles of England had so many servants that he had had a servant that would put his toothpaste on his toothbrush for him. He was waited upon hand and foot. Handmaids footmen to take care of any possible need that's what important people have they have handmaids and footmen to wait upon them because they're important now jesus is god everybody should be the handmaids and the footmen of jesus but what did he do he became the handmaid the footman he did this 
when he took the towel and put it around his belt and got on his knees and began to clean the disciples' feet. And don't think that, oh, that was just the disciples. That was emblematic of him cleaning your feet, serving you, waiting at your table, feeding you, ministering to you, serving you. This is the humility of Christ. He's king, but he's your waiter. And do you realize everything you have, you have to ask of God. You have to go, God, please give me. And he's there to give you. Lord, Lord, please, I'm scared. And he comes and comforts you. You don't have nothing to give him. You have nothing to serve him with. You don't have any resources. You don't have your own health is a gift of God. And he's waiting on you hand and foot. Somebody say amen. Because it's true. How is he waiting on you and I like that? Because he's humble. He's humble. Now think about it. Who are you, old man? Who are you to be too good to do something when you have God serving you like he's serving you? Are we not likewise to serve one another? Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. For us not to think we're too good or we're high, we're lofty, we're important, you know. To really just evaluate ourselves and not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But to really kind of have a right evaluation of ourselves like I'm nothing. And, and if God can serve me, if Christ can lay down his, his uh, uh, veil his deity and, his hum, and come into his humanity and serve and wait on me, can I not at least seek to minister to the needs of the saints? Are we not to have a special love for the brethren? Are we not to out, seek to outdo in showing each other honor? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I'm assuming... I assume everything in this church is great. I don't assume any negative things. But there may be someone sitting over here and won't sit over here because they're upset with someone over here. Check your heart. Who are you to hold a grudge? Who are you to be prideful and go, I can't forgive? Who are you not to seek the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with all humility? Seeking to outdo and showing honor to everybody else and taking the lowest seat at the table. No, you, you go. I'll, I'll, I'll stay behind. I'll take care of this. I'll do this. You go ahead. No, no. And just prefer others and not seek your own interest, but the interest of others and seek to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see His humility in His coming to us. Secondly, we see His humility in serving us and lastly we see his humility in dying for us look at verse 8 being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even the death on a cross you know he's taking the cup of reputation prestige majesty glory he's getting ever last drop of reputation out 
He's not holding anything back. I will not just be praised. I will be scorned. I will take on laughter, mocking, abuse. I will be embarrassed. I will take on shame, disgrace. I will be considered the the lowest of the world. I will be considered by humanity as the scum of the world. I'll take on your shame, your sin, your disgrace. There's no greater humility in service than willingly laying down your life for another. Death itself is humiliating. You know, there's just something about knowing that we're dying that is humbling. And here's the, the author of life. He is life. He is the resurrection. He doesn't have to die, but in his humility, he says, I will experience death. And not just any death, but a shameful death. One of the most shameful deaths possible. And it's, you know, the cross, the crucifixion is not just an instrument of torture. It's an instrument of shame. And it's not that they put the cross up on a hill way far away where you can barely make out the criminals. They put the cross right on the edge of the road. It was right there where people could spit upon those who were being crucified. Those who could look upon. And they stripped them down naked. That's an embarrassing thing. To be exposed. And I mean, we, we try to put a little dignity in this thing. There's no dignity at all in the crucifixion. It's a public mockery. I mean, they, the people that looked at Jesus, they wagged their heads back and forth and stuck out their tongues and made fun of him. And he was exposed. He willingly endured this. Hebrews 12, 2 says, fixing her eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Here's the shame. None of us would want to do this. I mean, we would be, if we had to go on the cross, we would be so embarrassed. We would be looking for a robe to cover our shame. We would be looking for something to hide ourselves from people's mocking. And here's the humility of Jesus Christ. He despised it. Nothing. Oh, I'm gladly be mocked. Nothing. You know, he, this is because he's humble. He didn't take on humility. He is humble. He's meek and lowly of heart. That's his nature. That's who he is. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. He willingly endured your disgrace, your shame. Now, I want you to understand this and really appreciate this. And so you got to dig into your conscience and contemplate this. And I'm not talking to anybody else. I'm talking directly to you. You've got to think about your most embarrassing moments. And you have a life full of embarrassment. You've got things that you've done, things that you've thought. You've got things that you're ashamed of. You've got skeletons in the closet and that you've hit them so good, you, you put them back in the recourses of your mind because you are too embarrassed to even think upon them yourself. Now imagine all your sins what you thought about this person and some of the, the crazy ideas that's gone through your mind. Some of the perverse, wicked, 
so wicked that you just cringe to think about them. Think about your wicked, evil, embarrassing, shameful thinking being exposed on this projector, not just for this church to see, but for all the world to see. You would dig a hole and you'd put your head in the hole. You would never come back out again. You would be so embarrassed. You would never go to Walmart. You would never get out in public because everybody would know who you are. You're an embarrassment. You say, Jeff, don't talk to me that way. It's true. And you know it. You know it. You know it. You're a wicked person. And that shame and that disgrace that the whole world should be walking next to you naked and exposed. They should be going, ooh, ooh, look at that criminal. You should be mocked at, laughed at for the rest of your days. That shame, the shame that you try to cover and hide from God, from others, and from yourself. That shame, Jesus openly, willingly took on himself. He bore our shame. He become our embarrassment so that you don't have to endure it. Praise God. Praise God. The shame has been wiped away. We're going to be glorified with Christ without the shame. We get the riches without the poverty. He endured our griefs, our embarrassment, our shame. Look at this. Psalms 22, verse 6, but I'm a worm. This is prophetic about Jesus. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Psalm 69, verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Romans 15, 3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. He endured a very embarrassing death. Not just painful death, yet it wasn't painful death, but it is emotionally painful. He willingly endured our shame while knowingly, knowing that we had been Ashamed of Him. You ever been ashamed of Christ? Sure you have. Every time you were afraid to witness and you knew you had an opportunity to share faith, but you were just a little embarrassed because you're afraid of what people might think about your reputation. But the Lord knows that you would be an embarrassed of Him, but He still took your embarrassment. He endured your embarrassment even knowing that you would be embarrassed of Him. Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom man hide their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. Now just how humiliated was Christ when He died? I'm telling you, there was not a drop left. He emptied the cup. Fully of all reputation. Now, it's one thing for man to mock him. That's one thing. You know, let man say what they will of you or me. I want God's approval. That's what matters. 
But do you realize on the cross the humility of Christ is His own Father turned His back on His Son? And why did the Father turn His back? He saw your shame, your sin. And God is so holy that He can't look upon sin. He can't stand to look upon it. And He saw your embarrassment, your sin, your wickedness. And then the Lord cried out, My God, my God, you too, you too are ashamed of me. You too are turning your face away from me. I'm stuck alone with the whole world and even my own father rejecting me. I promise you there's never been a greater act of humility ever displayed than there on the cross. There's never been a greater condescension than deity dying a shameful death on Calvary. This is the humility of Jesus Christ. We can't fathom it. And in closing, let me apply it to you. First, we should glorify Him for His humility. It was because of this, later on it says, that God has given Him a name above all names. Now, He's no longer humbled. He's going to be put above everybody else. And He deserves to be there. You know, sometimes it's hard to like people who are talented and good at everything. It's like, oh, they're... The reason why we don't like the gifted and the talented is because we think they know they're gifted and talented. We assume they're prideful. So we don't like them. We're envious. But it's hard to not like the one who humbled himself for us. It's hard for us to find fault in the perfect man if that perfect man is the most humble man. You see, he's altogether glorious There's nothing in him that can make us go, oh, there's this blemish there. There's something not to appreciate. He's altogether worth our admiration, our praise, our worship. And we should worship him for his humbleness. That he is meek and lowly. We should seek to emulate him. Paul tells us, he begins this text by saying, let nothing, verse 3, be done from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is in yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It is his humility that, that gives you hope that you can be humble. Third, let us not exalt ourselves. Let's not go look at me, put the spotlight on ourselves. When we go in the room, let's take the lowest seat at the table. Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Really humble yourself in your thinking. I mean, just, I mean, God actually is the one who come below his real value. You know, he actually is the one who condescended. You can't condescend. You just got to get to reality. I'm nothing. Let someone else praise you. Proverbs 27, 2. Let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. Let us seek to serve others. Ephesians 4, 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low positions. Do not be conceited. You know what God hates? Pride. He hates it. 
because he's humble. He knows nothing of it. You know, it's not the Father glorifying Himself. It's the Son glorifying the Father. It's not the Son glorifying Himself. It's the Father glorifying the Son. They, they, they're giving, not trying to take. They're humble in every dimension. Do you know, the Bible teaches the way up is the way down. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, Luke 14, 11 says. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. You know what I'm scared about? I know. I'm going to be honest with you. I know I'm a prideful man. I know I am. But you know what scares me about it? It scares me to death because I understand how the law of gravity works. If I drop a heavy object, if I drop any object, it's going to fall 100% of the time. This is not a, you know, maybe it's going to happen. This is a guarantee where pride is, there's going to be a fall. Therefore, humble yourself before you are humiliated. Take the initiative to humble yourself. Thus, we should be like the Lord. And those who humble themselves, God will exalt. He exalted Jesus above everybody else. Psalms 149, verse 4, For the Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the humble with victory. 1 Peter 5, 5, All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Psalms 25, 9, He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. I mean, being a humble Christian is the part of the essence of being a Christian. Having a lowly and meek perception of yourself. My last word before I take off to the airport is a word to you who do not know the Lord. One of the things that's keeping you from the Lord is your pride. Your pride. You want to be served. You want your way. You want it to do it the way you want to do it. Another reason might keep you from coming to the Lord is you're scared of Him. You're scared because you know you're a wicked person. And you're afraid if you go to God, God's going to turn His back on you. But because He's humble, you see, He will receive you. He says, Lo, I am meek and humble. That gives you and I hope to come to Him. I can come to a God like this. He will receive me because He's not too big for me. He's not too important for me. He's humble. I can come to Him. You can come to a God like this. The only reason you won't is your pride. Humble yourself. Fall before King Jesus. And I'll promise you, He will receive you. And He will forgive you. This is the humility of our God. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for sending Your Son. And Jesus, thank You. We don't even know how to thank You. We don't have words to say right now. But what we do want to say is thanks, but we pray that You would sanctify our thanks. Because we can't express the gratitude 
we have and what gratitude we need to have for such condescension that you have demonstrated for us in saving us from our pride and arrogance. This we pray in your son's name.